agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government hugged the government love. The government hugged the government love. The government Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. I'm joined today by my conservative counterpart, Oklahoma Christian University political scientist, Trey Orndorf. Hey, Trey. Hey, Mike. It's great to do the show with you. Yeah, it's nice to have a chance to do this for, for a change. You know, we, we typically don't get a chance to, to, have the, to do the show together, and so I'm really looking forward to it, especially given how much we have to talk about today. Well, and a lot of substantive things. Ab- absolutely. Yeah. But before we get to that, I want to thank our newest supporters, Ben and Jonathan. We really appreciate your support. And as Patreon supporters, Ben and Jonathan now get that second full-length episode every week that we post on Wednesdays, as well as ad-free versions of all of our shows. There's a bunch of other different stuff at different levels. To check it all out, go to patreon.com slash politics guys and always remember that if you would like that midweek show but you're not in the place where you can financially afford to support the show not a problem just send me an email mikepoliticsguys.com and i will get you all set up and also if a monthly pledge you too much of a commitment i get that or if you just like to support us on a one-time or recurring basis but don't want to go through patreon there's our paypal option and you can find that at politicsguys.com support and now we are on venmo at politics guys Okay, so with that out of the way, of course, the big news is uh, the COVID relief bill. In fact, I was saying to Trey just before we got started, this is uh, Saturday morning, we're recording this. I was watching C-SPAN as the amendments were kind of going by. But as most people, I'm sure, know that on Thursday, the Senate opened debate on President Biden's $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill that was passed last week by the House with no Republican support. And initially, debate was delayed because Republican Senator Ron Johnson decided he would not agree to the waiving of the reading of the bill. And so some poor Senate clerks had to read all 600 plus pages of it. Uh, So, yeah. Uh, But then after that was the still going on as at this point, the vote-a-rama, which for those of you who don't know, is a feature of the budget reconciliation process through which this measure is being passed to avoid a filibuster. And This also allows senators to introduce a stream of amendments that have to be voted on prior to final passage of that underlying legislation. Few of these amendments are are typically passed, but it does allow the majority or the minority party to get the majority on the record for votes that they hope will be politically damaging to them and politically helpful to their own careers. Like, for to give you an example, around 830 this morning, I looked and there was a Ted Cruz amendment requiring that schools have in-person learning to receive any funding, followed a few minutes later by a Romney amendment limiting state funding to only what's needed for direct COVID response. And the last I looked, a Tuberville amendment that would bar education funds from school that allows schools that allow biological males in female sports. So you, you kind of get the sense of it there, I think. But I should point out, Trey, that that's not just for the minority party, because sometimes the senator and the majority will do the same thing. Like, for instance, Bernie Sanders amendment on a $15 per hour minimum wage, which, you know, he introduced, even though the Senate parliamentarian last week ruled that it couldn't be part of that reconciliation bill. 
And that amendment was actually defeated with eight Democrats joining every Senate Republican in opposition. And here's a little bit of trivia for you. Tra- this, I just heard this this morning that this amend that amendment, that vote was open for longer, apparently, than any other vote has been. That's right. Yep. Like over 12 hours, I think. So uh, but and of course, the reason that was open so long wasn't to debate on that. But was Joe Manchin, the king of the Senate, uh, who was <laughs> unwilling to sign on to that $400 per week jobless benefit uh, portion that was included in the House version. And there was so much back and forth. And after that, finally, an agreement was reached on keeping benefits at the current $300 per week, extending those benefits through September 6th, and then making the first $10,200 of those benefits tax-free for households of up to $150,000. And then, of course, there's the other big part that everyone was concerned about, the direct cash payments. And that that looks like that's going to end up being with $1,400 checks going to those earning $75,000 or less with the payments decreasing above that limit and ending altogether at $80,000 in individual income. And that's, again, below what the House passed. So mm-hmm. and now once the Senate, once the Senate approves this package, which should be it could it, it, probably not by the time we're done recording this, but certainly by sometime on Saturday, I expect the House will then have to agree to adopt the Senate measure, at which point then uh, President Biden can sign the measure into law. And that almost certainly will happen before March 14th. And that's an important date because that's when tens of millions of Americans will start to lose those supplemental unemployment benefits that they're covered on currently. So, Trey, what do you think uh, about uh, where we're at now and where we're likely to end up and maybe even uh, Ron Johnson's little stunt? (laughs) <laughs> we, I, I think one of the things worth pointing out is, is that the fact you, you were talking about mansion, I, I don't know if you noticed the, uh, the date that it was going to be ending on is actually for the unemployment benefits will now be when the Senate is in recess. Uh, and I think the, the reason that mansion wanted it where he does is, is I think this is a signal that this is the end of unemployment extension. And I think this is a signal that this is the end of COVID relief. Because uh, it's a great opportunity to have things stop when the Senate's not going to be in session, uh, when people are going to be uh, celebrating a Labor Day weekend and probably celebrating a Labor Day weekend a little bit more open than they have in the past. So one of the things that I was looking at was when some of that's going to end, when you get done, when you get done with that historic longest uh, powwow uh, during that vote on the $15 an hour. Uh you know, I'm not surprised about Ron Johnson uh, objecting, making him read it into the record. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that you do in the Senate. You, the Senate's designed to be this slow, crazy process. I think I think more than anything else, Mike, uh, that taking a look at the maturations between Democrats is evidence here of what I think is going to be I, those of us who pay close attention to the Senate are not going to be surprised uh, that Democrats are now going to have a lot of negotiating with themselves, right? I mean, they've got 50 votes exactly. We talked about this on the show. Uh, but I think it's sometimes hard for listeners to remember that Democrats, Republicans, they're not a unified bloc. Uh, and so now you're going to see, in the same way that we saw Republicans when they had slim majorities, uh, have to then navigate between their various factions. I think Democrats' factions are going to become more apparent uh, and I think the COVID bill is, is playing that out. So while it's interesting to watch McConnell and uh, Johnson 
uh, tried to get everybody on the record on a few of these things. You were you actually mentioned Romney's uh, amendment, um, which I actually thought was a pretty good one uh, to get somebody on the hook on a bill. I thought I thought it was a shrewd move. Uh, but besides that, the real story takes place over on the Democratic caucus where they've now got to figure out how do we get guys like Manchin to also play with progressives. Uh, and so and I, th- I think that's what we're going to be seeing coming out of this vote, because, as you know, this is going to go through and as as uh, myself and uh, Ken had already talked about a couple of weeks ago, you know, on, on the substantive issue of this bill, I, th- I think there's some problems. Yeah. You know, on the unemployment side of things, I and that this is a hobby horse that I get on all the time. These this these artificial cutoff dates. You know, whether it's September sixth or or sometime in August or July, <laughs> which was I mean, and, and these are just dates that just get pulled out of a hat essentially. And it always seems to me to be ridiculous because unemployment. If you're going to extend unemployment benefits, it would make you would think a reasonable person would say, why don't we link that to the actual unemployment level as opposed to just saying, oh, yes, this date in August or September, because it helps the number come in at X number or Y number. That just always just drives me nuts. And then they have to keep on coming back or, or you know, it could work the other way, too. Right. Because the, the latest jobs report, something like three hundred thousand, three hundred forty seven thousand or something like that jobs added. Things are looking mm-hmm. Pretty good. You know, the president says that uh, there'll be a vaccine for everyone by the end of May. And you can envision certainly a scenario where we don't need the extended jobless aid as far as September. And yet this doesn't provide for that flexibility. So that just always really really just annoys me. I, I, I'm a big fan of automatic stabilizers that turn on and off without having to go through these all of these negotiations. And I was wondering how you felt about that. I'm not surprised about it. My, I mean, again, the original date was actually pushed for, uh, further out and it got brought back. And again, I think it's, I think it's some, I think it's politics at play that, that put it when it does. Um, you, you talk about the automatic stabilizers. I think for those of us who are more on the policy side, we find those useful, but of course we're not the ones getting elected. <laughs> sure. Uh, and I, and I think ultimately the reason that you see what seems like artificial dates for these is because you have a lot of individuals who are trying to secure votes in certain ways. Uh, and again, I think having it uh, end at an advantageous time when the Senate isn't going to take it up again, uh, when they're out of uh, session, when you're over a holiday uh, period, it is just politically more expedient to do it that way. So I don't disagree with you on the sense that Hey, you know, you, you can link this to things like job growth, but I don't think congresspersons are going to be inclined to do that because, again, it's not in their reelection benefit to do that. And as we know from the the research, the primary goal of congresspersons is to get reelected. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and on the substance of this, I'm going to I don't know if this is going to be surprising or not, but I'm going to argue that actually one point one point nine trillion dollars is considerably too much. Uh, and I'm not alone. Wait a second. You're going to you you're agreeing with me. Well, I'm agreeing with you. I'm agreeing with Mitt Romney and 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 a bunch of other people actually to the right of me. Yeah, and but I'm not just agreeing with the right. I'm agreeing with the the Congressional Budget Office, which says that you know the the U.S. economy is somewhere between 600 and 700 billion dollars below what we'd expect currently due to the pandemic. And here we're looking at a 1.9 trillion dollar measure. And if you look at the state and local 
aspect of it. You know, most analyses, whether you're talking about left wing or right wing, find that state and local governments need considerably less than that $350 billion allocated in the current proposal. And so to me, it just seems like, well, I understand the argument better to go too big than to go too small. But there there is a limit there. And not only that, but there are other things that government needs to do. And so to me, one of the big things, one of the big near-term things, and Biden, President Biden says it's a priority, is infrastructure. And Biden's infrastructure plan, it looks like it may come in at around $2 trillion. Uh, and, you know, $1.9 trillion here, $2 trillion there, it, it starts to add up. And even if you're comfortable with, if you're a modern monetary theory person who says, you know what, it doesn't matter, deficits don't matter, there's still the political will to pass a $2 trillion infrastructure plan, you know, maybe six months after you pass a $1.9 trillion COVID relief package, that that's going to be pretty difficult. So I'm not saying just don't spend this money full stop, but just think about where you're spending it. Because of course, a well done infrastructure plan actually is also an economic stimulus plan. And, and I'd like to see, you know, a lot of that go for that, yeah, even though I should point out Bernie Sanders, who's the chair of the Senate Budget Committee, thinks that the infrastructure plan can go through reconciliation. And under current rules, there can be one more reconciliation bill this year. But even so, I think, you know, Manchin and some other centrist Democrats might say, you know, I, I'm not so comfortable about a huge, a huge infrastructure bill when we've already done all this other spending. So that's that's my main concern. Well, you know, I, I deeply agree. We we talked on the show, Ken and I, a couple of weeks ago. We got a little heated on this topic, actually, uh, because, you know, I, I am not a modern um, uh, economic theorist on this one. Uh, I do think that there are levels of debt that indicate uh, issues. As a matter of fact, we were we were talking about that on our um, supporters only um, discord channel. Had a really great kind of deb uh, uh, scholarly debate almost on that one, uh, and, and and so I agree with you, Mike. I mean, as we pointed out there, and as I've talked about before, when you take a look at this 1.9 trillion uh, billion bill with the other previous two COVID relief bills, you actually get a bigger dollar amount than we did for an entire year of spending in 2019. It comes in a little bit over 4.4. Trillion, which was in fact the 2019 uh, uh, fiscal budget, to, uh, both discretionary and mandatory, uh, and and I agree with you further that this is an area I think Democrats could do better on. I, I, it was a little baffling to me that this is how they want to spend the money. Now we didn't talk uh, in any of that about, say, the infrastructure bill, but I'm but you're right. I think one of the things that Democrats are going to have to recognize, and that I mentioned this earlier, and that is, is when you're the party who's not in power, it's really easy to get complacent in thinking that you have uniformity on your team, right? And I think that's one of the things that maybe was problematic for uh, Republicans, and I, I think it was problematic for me when we opposed a lot of the policies of the Obama administration, there was a thought that we were still on the same ideological page. And then Trump comes on the scene and, and clearly it's not. And you find yourself being in a in a weird position like myself. Uh, but now Democrats are going to have to face the same issue. 
And the other thing that you have to talk about, and you talk about it kind of in momentum, I'd like to talk about it in terms of political capital. I mean, even if you don't think you can spend so much uh, money, there, there's gonna, there's a point where you don't have the political capital and will to get uh, further issues done, and, and you're already shooting one of your abilities to pass a bill without uh, having to worry about a filibuster. I, I agree with you wholeheartedly that I think that this bill could have been tuned uh, much smaller, still met the promises of Biden, but allowed to have a, some additional momentum to do things I think would would have been probably more beneficial. Yeah, uh, but I, I also think that there are there may be some Democrats who feel like this is our one bite at the apple and we better make sure who knows if we're going to be able to get something else through. Because, of course, what can go through or not under reconciliation, that's not necessarily a uh, regardless of what Bernie Sanders thinks. I mean, he thought that, you know, the minimum wage to get through in reconciliation. So, you know, I, I, so I think there are a lot of people on the left saying we should go as big as we can because who knows if we're going to be in a position to get anything more. And especially, but I don't think this is the one that, I mean, if you want to go big or go home, this doesn't feel like the bi- the bi- bill that's going to leave the lasting legacy, right? I mean, this is kind of like, uh, you know, you, you give your kids some money, <laughs> uh, they're going to be happy for a minute. But as you know, like an infrastructure bill, that's going to be a longer lasting legacy. Uh, so I, I hear what you're saying about you want to get a big piece of the apple. I, I just don't know how much Besides being a big bunch of debt, I'm not sure how much this wins support for Democrats as being a go big or go home moment. I mean, I, I don't see progressives suddenly going to be like, oh, man, yes, Democrats did what I wanted. I, I see this being an issue where progressives are still going to hammer uh, uh, mainline Democrats for not having done more anyway. Yeah, I, I certainly think that uh – Many progressives will look at the differences between the House and the Senate version and and come to and come to that conclusion, especially on unemployment benefits. And that that's an issue, of course, where I do agree with with those further uh, on the left in that uh, I felt like a lot less should have gone into direct cash payments or they should have been more targeted in exchange for greater unemployment benefits, but ended up both of those things actually ended up being being cut a large in large part again because of because of King Mansion essentially. So uh, okay. and, and can I ask you a question about the COVID here? Because one of the things I've wondered about is it feels to me that we've kind of had this experiment in with direct payments with an idea of a reverse income tax. But at the same time we're also trying to continue to have unemployment benefits. Do you think there would be a chance, and this is, I mean, this would be something else a little different. I mean, instead of thinking about unemployment, maybe it's time to think about, you know, kind of rolling that into a singular, we're kind of okay with this idea of direct checks, but move them away from a targeted income, but rather targeted on tax returns uh, throughout the year. Do you do you see that being just, I mean, I know there's been a little bit of talk about that as a possibility, or do you think this is just and we were doing it because that was a promise from Biden. It sounds like you're channeling your inner, inner Milton Friedman there, uh, Trey. You know, uh, <laughs> I undoubtedly am. And listeners, I should point out, Friedman, a uh, very, uh, a very famous uh, 20th century uh, conservative libertarian sort of economist, and uh, a from lot of Chicago. people don't re- don't recognize that this idea of direct payments to people actually uh, sort of came out of libertarian circles in a way. And, and and it seems like this real kind of lefty sort of thing. But in answer to your question, Trey, no, I, I don't see there being, I know uh, uh, Andrew, uh, Andrew Yang has talked 
about it, some other folks, but no, I, I don't see this happening anytime, anytime soon. I think this is just going to be seen as kind of a, a one-off thing in part because I think a lot of folks in, in the Repo in Republican circles, even though this was originally a conservative idea, is just say, you know what, you can't give people money for nothing. That just that just sets up bad behavior. And I, you know, I may disagree with that. I've always hoped, I guess, that this is a space where libertarians and Democrats could come to uh, an agreement on, you know, so, but no, I hear you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, you know, uh, the next thing I wanted to really get into, this is something I'm super excited about, Trey, uh, something, because, you know, institutional reform near and dear to my heart, uh, going to be sort of the, yes, going to be the, the real kind of keystone of my Senate campaign. And I just love this stuff. And so I, I'm so excited to get a chance to talk with you about the uh, Senate, uh, sorry, the House passage of H.R. 1 to For the People Act. And, and we have a lot to say about that. But before we do get into that, we just want to take a short break and we will be right back to talk about the For the People Act. Okay, so Trey, on Wednesday, I'm sure you know, the House passed H.R. 1, the For the People Act, which with all but one House Democrat supporting the measure and unanimous Republican opposition as expected. And it is a huge piece of legislation, somewhere around 800 pages. I have not read every page, but I, I've looked through a good portion of it because, as I said, I love this stuff. Uh, uh, Republicans point out that it would be the greatest federal intervention in elections uh, in, well, in living memory, perhaps. And and they're right about that. I don't necessarily see it as a bad thing. Uh, <laughs> should also point out that virtually identical legislation was passed by the House in 2019. But of course, then the Senate was in Republican control. Donald Trump was president. So that was pretty much it. Now, we could absolutely devote an entire episode to each of the kind of main areas of the bill. Uh, and those are title. Yeah. Voting expansion, campaign finance reform, uh, election security, uh, congressional ethics laws, I guess you could say are the main areas. But but for now, what I thought we could do is just kind of look at some key provisions. And because there is so much, I thought it made most sense for maybe for us to go kind of area by area, if you're OK with that, Trey. That's fine. I, I, as a matter of fact, it's funny you were talking about reading the bill. I, I, I got through a lot of it, took some extensive notes. Uh, and uh, yeah, I, I think area by area is not a bad plan. Yeah, a lot, a lot of stuff. So, so let's start with voting rights. And in the area of voting rights, this legislation would mandate automatic voter registration on an opt out as opposed to an opt in basis. So meaning that you would automatically be registered unless you said, no, don't do that. Um, it would require states to have same day voter registration, would require an online registration option in every state mandate at least 15 consecutive days of early voting with early voting sites open for at least 10 hours per day on each of those days. So you can't cheat and say, oh, we were open for 10 minutes on this day. Um, it would prohibit limitations. With no pro forma session. Exactly, exactly. You know, <laughs> but it would also prohibit limitations on voting by mail and require states to prepay postage on mail in those return envelopes for mail in voting. It would prohibit purging of voting rolls. It would restore voting rights to all felons who've served their sentences. And it would establish independent redistricting commissions for drawing congressional districts. And again, those are just some of the main areas in voting rights. And so, Trey, what's your reaction to the voting rights uh, elements of this legislation? I think, well, let's talk policy and we can talk simultaneously politics sure. on, on having it happen. 
you know, for example, the uh, provisions requiring commissions, I, I understand the that. Espe- I mean, let's be honest, pragmatically, Democrats have lost out in many ha- in, in many races because Republicans, we've been better at local races than, than Democrats have. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, and because we win at state legislatures, we have an advantage. And it doesn't matter. I mean, you you can talk about, you know, how gerrymandering, what should be allowed, what shouldn't be allowed. We can just put that aside for a second to say, well, that's an advantage you're going to have if you have the state legislature. Republicans have that advantage. Uh, so I understand why Democrats are including it in here. But I don't think there's any way that that can get through the Senate as it is right now, even with some of your conservative uh, Democrats. I understand the desire to do that. And, and this is something you can probably talk about. but drawing districts is a difficult, difficult, uh, deal. I don't know what you do for your, uh, students. I actually have students play a video game for learning how to draw districts. Have you ever used the, the I'm, uh, I'm familiar with some of those, some of those things. And you know, I, I should point out, Trey, right, that this already passed a house where it would actually have a real effect. Whereas yep. in the Senate, this has no effect on the Senate because, of course, there's no gerrymandering in the Senate. So senators yep. could vote for or against this, knowing that it's not like it's going to change the borders of Ohio or Oklahoma or anything like that. Yeah. And I just I don't think that the country is ready. I, I don't think there's enough support to put that through. Uh, but I, I am sympathetic to the problems that exist as a result of having partisan drawing of boundaries. The fixes for those come with their own drawbacks. But, but again, I'm, I'm not as harsh as my some of my Republicans. This probably makes me a little different than an average Republican, definitely. I am up for kind of districting reform, but I just don't think that's a possibility. What I actually like more are the ideas of the increasing eligibility, having it be opt out. I think those are things that Congress can and, as and a matter of fact, should set standards on. Um, so I like that. Now, I think where the, we're going to have a little bit of issue there, and you, you hadn't mentioned this one, was in that passage, we're going to be ending felony disenfranchisement. Um, and I'm, this is another area where I'm wondering, maybe the House is just going for as you would put it, kind of going big or going home to, to, to play out to progressives. But given the way that the Supreme Court has ruled on the 14th Amendment, I don't see that holding up, even if the Senate happened to pass it. I don't see that holding up in court. I mean, in uh, Richardson v. Ramirez, which is the standing uh, law in this case, it indicates that states get to have the sole discretion over for what reason you're going to disenfranchise somebody. Uh, and they point to the second uh, section of, of, of the 14th Amendment. So there was a number of these passages in this earlier, and I'm curious about your take on this, Michael, where I feel like they're just making a statement, even though I don't think it can actually be a real pass in some cases, because I don't think there's the, pol- the political will in the Senate to have it done, or in other cases where I just don't, I don't see it being held up constitutionally, given the current uh, uh, Supreme Court we have. So do you think some of these provisions, like felony disenfranchisement, whatever you think about it, I, I don't think it's going to move forward. So you're including it, I, I, I guess, as a way, again, as we mentioned with the Senate, for to kind of placate progressives. Well, there are there are a lot of ways to look at this bill in its entirety. And I think one of the ways of looking at the House legislation is it's an opening negotiation. And just like with 
just like with COVID, which we were talking about, was the Senate takes what the House says and says, well, you know what, we have to cut back on this, this, and this. But uh, if you're if you're a progressive, you're thinking, well, let's not start with our bottom line, you know, minimum acceptable. Let's start a little higher and we can kind of we can kind of work this out in conference or work this out and accept the Senate version, just like what's happening with, with COVID, certainly. And you know, with the COVID, if the House had started with say three hundred dollars, you know, per per week unemployment, they might have gotten less than that even. And so I think from a negotiating standpoint, it perhaps makes sense. But also I think that there actually is a a possibility for if not this entire legislation to be passed, at least elements of it to be passed. In fact, I think that it would be – I think that – here's my very bold prediction, Trey, is that before the 2022 midterms, the filibuster will be – probably not removed, but will be amended in some way or modified. Mm. I think it's going to be modified in my best guess would be modified in some way to disallow the filibuster for voting rights issues, maybe for some other things. But I think for voting rights issues, that really ties into the sort of message we've been hearing and, and the actual history is that the filibuster does have that kind of Jim Crow legacy. And you look back in the 50s and the 60s, it kind of like that that era where that's where the filibuster was almost exclusively used to defeat civil rights legislation. And so I think that's going to be the more moderate route. And also that allows Joe Manchin to keep his promise to say, I will never abolish the filibuster and just say, well, it was modified. And so I think that happens. That allows a number of these things to go through. And and I think that that also means that the, the process becomes more small D democratic because what these things tend to do is they will tend to expand the electorate and expand the electorate probably in a way that is going to give a short term benefit to Democrats. But he, here's I think the larger point is that I think that this actually makes a lot of sense for Republicans in the long run, too, because if you look at state legislatures, especially Republican-controlled state legislatures across the country, there are a flurry of bills that are working to make voting more difficult. And Arizona. Yeah, Arizona, Georgia, one, there, there are a whole bunch of, and the reasons are understandable. It seems to me the dominant Republican strategy is, well, who are the people who elected us? Let's make sure, let, let's concentrate on that ever shrinking segment of the electorate. And if we make it more difficult for people who don't vote for us to vote, we will stay in power. And that's going to work for a certain period of time. But eventually, that's going to stop working. And, and, and the problem is, is that prevents the Republican Party, I think, from becoming more of a party of ideas and a party that can more broadly appeal to folks who are outside the traditional shrinking, you know, white person coalition. And I don't see how that doesn't hurt the Republican Party also in the long run. I, what do you think about that? Well, I'm going to respond to two parts of that because I, I think you, you, you're getting into the heart of the matter. One, you say, well, you don't think that that kind of restriction can work long term. I would say historically, now this is not me making a, a, a moral claim. I want to be clear about that. But I think empirically you're wrong because if it didn't, uh, we wouldn't see hundreds of years of it being successful. Right. Um, I don't necessarily think that's a losing strategy, which is why it is why we're seeing what we'll end up probably talking about in a later episode of the show with the uh, the Arizona case uh, heading to the Supreme Court and what uh, the Republican lawyers are talking about there. 
Um, so I, I disagree empirically that I think it's that kind of inevitability. Um, and maybe that makes me a little bit of a, a pessimist, but I, I, I think having those, some of those restrictions is one of the reasons why that's why a lot of Republicans are for it. Now on the second one, I agree with you deeply. I think that as Republicans, one of the things that we have just got to overcome is this idea that we aren't the party of, a, of, of diversity. And I think one of the things, especially, and this is where I think those of us who are the libertarian leanings, that we especially have a voice, I think libertarianism, uh, more than any other of the ideologies that out, is something that benefits the widest, most diverse group of people that you possibly can. And I think one of the reasons that we have seen uh, African Americans often vote with the Democratic Party and sometimes in, in, in near lockstep is because, not because we don't have things to offer, but instead because we have purposefully excluded them uh, uh, from being targets uh, from our campaigns, from our ideas. And, and that is, that's going to be a problem now. That's going to be a problem in the future. And, and, and as we continue to look at a more diverse America, it continues to be a problem. We have answers for many of those questions, but we refuse to think or refine about them because we're too busy placating the good old boy Trump supporters. And I, I think it's, I mean, let those guys go and let's make this message that, that anyway, that, that's a, I have a high horse. No, I, I, but. <laughs> I, 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 I'm with you there, certainly. And, and I, I actually think that while I understand your argument on the empirical side, looking way back in history, I, I think, though, if you kind of limit it to the last, say, 50, 60 years, what you see is it's increasingly more difficult because once you kind of open that door and start to give historically disadvantaged groups rights, increasing rights, it becomes harder to kind of make those restrictions. And I think as well, our – Can I give you a counterexample? Oh, yeah, I mean, please the, do. Well, the, the Voting Rights Act gets restricted by the Supreme Court. What? Two, how many years ago now is it? Um, just just a few, yeah. The whole, the whole two years case, ago, yeah. three years ago. Somebody can correct me in the, uh, in the <laughs> but yeah. Uh, I mean, there you know, it's expanded, and then the Supreme Court shrinks it. And while there was a little bit of outcry, I cannot say that that generated a big bunch of uh, yeah. political momentum. But 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 also, I would think though that this is a little bit this is a little bit different because, of course. You know, there are some people on the right who are arguing uh, incorrectly that these uh, these federal laws, if federal rules, if they were actually put into law, would be unconstitutional. Of course, it's, as you know, Trey, that the that the uh, the elections clause does give Congress the right to supersede state laws, even though it's traditionally mm -hmm. the province of the states. And so, uh, this would not be the sort of thing, at least in many of these instances, that the Supreme Court could actually rule against in any in any legitimate sort of way. And I don't think that that would happen. Whereas that section five of the voting rights act, uh, you know, there was actually a, a legitimate way of, you know, pull, of rescinding that, even though a lot of folks on the left certainly disagreed with that decision. So I think that's, that's what makes this sort of thing different. It would not be, a lot of these reforms would not be subject to being reversed by a Supreme court and by this Supreme court, because I, I believe that even though, I disagree with many of the justices on the court. A majority of the justices on the court aren't going to just sort of throw the Constitution out the window so they can get to their preferred ideological results. I agree. Uh, but now, 
while I think that's true for the measures like automatic registration, eliminating voter identification requirements, uh, I think that you could see, like I mentioned again, uh, for felony disenfranchisement, you could see the Supreme Court stepping in. I also think on the extending early voting to having a uniform 50 states, I think that you might see step in since the Constitution does specify a day. Uh, you know, the, the Supreme Court has yet to be asked that question on a state level. State Supreme Courts have the federal Supreme Court. Uh, has never really kind of squared that one away. So I can imagine you could have a court case dealing with uh, having this national, you know, early voting uh, possibility. Yeah, I don't I don't uh, think so. And, and here's why, because that would potentially invalidate mail-in voting as well, because mail-in voting, of course, is by definition early voting. And I think the court would be far more likely to just say, you know what, we are not going to enter into this thicket and we are going to let this stand. Because, of course, if you let the federal... If it was one, well, if it was one piece of the same law, I, w- I would be more uh, agreeable to you. But in federal law, since you actually have two separate kinds of provisions. So even here in this bill in HR1, you'll notice that you have separate passages that deal with um, voting by mail. There's a matter of fact, several sections dealing with national standards by voting uh, by mail in HR1, uh, which are separate from the uh, provisions dealing with early voting. And because those two are bifurcated, I don't think this, I think the Supreme Court would consider them separate matters because Congress has considered them separate matters. I I will say, I will, I will, I will Make a very bold stand. I am absolutely 100% confident, Trey. And I would bet you, uh, I would bet you 100 bucks right now, no problem, no question, that the Supreme Court will never strike down a national early voting. early voting period. It just would not happen. I will say you are absolutely unequivocally 100% wrong on that. That's how certain <laughs> I am about that, Trey. It's That's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. I will happen. say, I mean, I, you know, I, I bet like on the air would be awesome. Now, right now, all of my $100 bills are getting uh, directly placed into my butt at the moment. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Trey's not being weird on that. No, there's a, it's a, it's a medical I, I thing. Not like a, so not I'm like a still kink. Recovering. Yeah. I'm still recovering from a wound. You know, I was on the show for a while uh, because I had to have three different surgeries. And, and I think I mentioned that a little bit on the show, but I'm still going through a wound care process. It's expensive, folks. It's yes. expensive. Yeah. Trey's um, not into kinky stuff. You know, that's not. Yeah. That. He's not. <laughs> you pointed out, that sounded a lot worse. Than yeah. Yeah. yeah you know, <laughs> but uh, I will say, though, I mean, that whole experience maybe has pushed me a little bit left. But, you know, and, you know, another title you haven't talked about in HR1. Uh, you know, there was a number of uh, of areas, including uh, Title IV, uh, that are, I think, in part responses uh, to actions by uh, President yeah. Trump, um, especially as it deals with reporting foreign election connections, deciding yeah, yeah. what is a foreign election connection. I wonder if you want to. Yeah, mean, I, I, definitely, I, I want to get to those other sections. Absolutely. Because there are also these provisions that are related to campaign finance. There are a lot of things yes. there. Like, Title for instance, five. the big one is that it would provide voluntary six to one matching for small donations. And those are those are defined as donations under two hundred dollars for congressional and presidential elections. And the source of that funding would be uh, adding a four point seven five percent fee to criminal and civil fines, penalties, settlements on financial institutions and corporations that have been found to have committed acts of malfeasance. So that's a big element right there, that that federal match. It would also require that super PACs and other dark money political organizations disclose their donors 
It would require that Facebook and Twitter disclose the source of money for political ads, as well as how much money was spent. And it would restructure the FEC, the Federal Election Commission, to have five commissioners as opposed to the current six with no more than two from the same party. Right now, it's six with no more than three. And this would uh, potentially avoid the deadlocks that we very commonly see. And those were the main campaign finance uh, well, aspects of it. One more that you might want oh, to add yeah. list. It, it would uh, change IRS reporting rules and effectively end what our 501 uh, sees. Okay. Yeah. And, 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 and so That's, basically okay. the idea would be to take, uh, to take unregulated, untransparent dark money out of the process, essentially. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So what do you think about that? So I, I, I have a positive and a negative here. I think a lot of what is attempting to be done on money, if making money more transparent, I think is, should be the primary goal of Congress. You know, sometimes uh, it is kind of uh, amusingly put kind of like the NASCAR way. Let's just have everybody's sponsors right there on their jackets. And I think there's actually some truth to that. The complicated donation uh, format we have in the United States today makes it very, very hard, if not in some cases impossible, to really understand who's financing what. And so from my point of view, Mike, I would much rather have a whole lot less legislation about how much and a whole lot more legislation on just making it straightforward from where. Because I think if you can answer the from where question, it's a whole lot easier than to make some decisions as a voter than it is trying to uh, deal with how much. Because again, as Title V even uh, calls for, None of this is really going to work the way it wants to work unless you can have a constitutional amendment that allows for campaign finance limits, you know, harder sets, in other words, to, to go around the Supreme Court ruling. So it seems to me that, that the better move here is some of these things to try to get rid of the loopholes for money where you don't know where it's coming from. I'm all behind that. Let's make that just crystal clear. I think the rest of this, of trying to kind of monkey with the public financing or the small donors, I don't think that's going to go anywhere. As a matter of fact, you know, this is not the first time that Congress has attempted to to have it. We've had it in presidential elections before, but the last guy to use uh, uh, federal funds for it was McCain when he went up to Obama and he got outspent by goodness knows how many hundreds of millions. I don't remember off the top of my head. Um, and nobody's done it since 2012. It's because the just like when you were mentioning earlier in policy, you have uh, these uh, unemployment benefits tied to random dates. These numbers are fixed. They're not going to last. This isn't a long-term policy fix. I, uh, if you really want to have a long-term policy fix, let's, let's, let's continue, I think, what's the positive side of the uh, Title IV here, which is called the Disclose Act, where we're trying to make sure that where the money is coming from is crystal clear. And that, I think, is a phenomenal part of this bill. And I think these other elements where we're really trying to kind of monkey with the financing, I don't think is going to I don't think will either A, have an impact or B, have the kinds of impacts that I think Democrats pushing it forward are hoping for. Well, you know, I don't think the transparency is has the sort of great effects that a lot of people think. I mean, I'm 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 for more transparency, but honestly, I, I don't think that's going to be that big of a deal because most people honestly don't really care a whole. I mean, 
super politically, you know, interested people like you and I say, oh, look at how much, you know, Sheldon Nielsen's estate or whoever gave to, you know, this. But <laughs> most people are like Sheldon who or, or the, the Coke, I like, what, what's that? You know, so I don't think that matters too much to most voters. It's the thing that political junkies get all excited about because other political junkies care about it. But we're a, a tiny part of the electorate. And to me, the larger part of this, I think it's worthless because this whole idea, I, I think, of somehow trying to limit or regulate money in politics is just completely wrongheaded. Every every attempt to limit money in politics is going to backfire because money is going to find a way into politics. There's too much at stake. It's water downstream. Yeah, exactly. And so to me, the smart way around this would not be to try to limit and regulate money in politics. I mean, to a certain extent, you have to. You can't have, you know, million-dollar donations because, you know, that's that's obviously a problem, right? But, you know, what happened in these 70s, uh, in these 1970s regulations that put these strict limits on, well, all of a sudden now, members of Congress, what they're spending most of their time on is raising money because they have to raise it in these tiny little bits and pieces, yet they have to spend, you know, millions of dollars. So, of course, they're going to be spending most of their time doing it. And when I say most of their time, I'm not exaggerating here. You know, um, they're regularly crossing the streets to go to their campaign, their, their, their party committees, because you can't raise money from your office, making phone calls, fundraising. What you do as a member of Congress, first and foremost, is you raise money to stay in office. And then if you have some time left over, maybe you try to legislate. And that is not an exaggeration. That's one of the first things that freshman members are told. Here are your fundraising targets. Here's what you have to do. And, and that's how the game is played. And, and so to me, real reform would be not limiting money, but actually focusing on where the money is coming from. Right. And so opening up the money so more people can donate. That's why I love the idea of voucher systems that would allow regular people to donate money because, you know, this matching funds idea, that's great. I, I mean, I guess that's OK. But most people I know, if they have an extra 50 bucks, they're not going to donate it to a, a political campaign. You know, and there are plenty of people if they have an extra 50 bucks. Hey, that maybe that means they pay a bill. You know, not to give to some politician who they don't trust or like in the first place. So matching funds, that's like a that's like an upper middle class sort of political class little thing. But it doesn't really do anything for regular people who are the ones who are most unrepresentative in the political money game. And so I just think this is just a bunch of uh, yeah, I just don't I'm not very impressed with any of it. <laughs> Well, I, I, that's I, I, I'm curious what Ken would think about that. Uh, but I agree. Now, I, I'm a little more uh, positive on the. I don't disagree with your analysis on the sense that the more disclosure is not going to be the thing that the average voter is using to vote. But I think that the, that one of the ways that we see less informed the average voter uh, vote is through cues from more informed individuals. At least that's that's the traditional model, Mike. And so I think that if junkies like us and others can pay attention to that, that that might then filter down into cues for voters the way we see other kinds of cues filter down for voters. So I don't disagree with your analysis. Yeah, I don't think suddenly, you know, the uh, the campaign disclosure websites are going to crash because, uh, yeah. you know, the same way that Kim Kardashian crashed things with the champagne bottle. But uh, I, I do think there could be a slightly more of an effect uh, because yeah. of that filtration. Um, again, just the given the way that we do measure uh, um, 
how voters decide. But again, I mean, that is kind of a depressing bit of literature, yeah. <laughs> you know, just overall. Well, and I also think the cue taking may be a little less because if certainly if regular voters had taken their cues from elites, Donald Trump never would have been president in the first place. You know, I have thoughts on that, but that, that is more than we have. Yeah, it's another, another <laughs> issue. So let, let's, yeah, let, let, let's move on. The other, the final aspect of this I wanted to talk about was the ethics part, okay, yeah. right? This would require candidates for president and vice president, as well as the president and vice president, to disclose 10 years of their tax returns. Gee, I wonder where that came from. Uh, like I said earlier, a lot of this is coming from Trump. There this you is go. Coming from the Mueller uh, report. It would extend the lobbying ban for former executive branch employees from one to two years. It would disallow the use of taxpayer money by members of Congress for settling sexual harassment or discrimination cases. And it would also give the Office of Government Ethics greater oversight capabilities, put in place stricter lobbying registration requirements as well. And those are some of just the main ethics provisions. Uh, what, did, what did you think about the ethics components of this bill? Well, I'm going to have to be honest. Uh, I don't know how you mark things up, but I, I have an iPad. I've got a pencil. And so I like to take note, like old school notes, but in a new school way. Sure. And as, as, as I was going through this, I can't tell you how many marginal notes that I had that was just like Trump, Trump. Yeah. Trump. <laughs> um, I, I think that requiring presidents to disclose their tax returns, if for no other reason, is a good symbolic victory <laughs> moving forward in the future. Um. I think some of these are more specifically just uh, hit at Trump, like the sexual uh, sexual misconduct. Um, but. Well, you know, I got to say, Trey, what I found interesting is how it focused on how it didn't focus on Congress. You know, like, well, let's expand yeah. the lobbying ban for the executive branch, but, but not for Congress. Exactly. And you know, this is a weird issue. A lot of listeners might not know this, but you would not ever put. AOC and, and Cruz together in a, in a sentence, they certainly wouldn't want you to. But but one issue that they actually have indicated agreement on is they both called for a lifetime lobbying ban for members of Congress. Now, I, I think that's impractical and not a good idea for other reasons. But you know, I could see something like five year ban and not just for this kind of direct can't go on the floor type of lobbying, but actual indirect lobbying as well, because I don't have to tell you, Trey, that the 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 number one job for ex-members of Congress is, you know, lobbying members of Congress. And uh, there's a big problem. And I think there's a a missed opportunity here. But of course, I can understand members of Congress not wanting to take away their future employment in this legislation and just kind of putting it down the executive branch, right? Well, I mean, you get, I mean, I and there's there's some conflict here because I mean one of the one of the ways to take this is it's kind of a dark incestuous evil and there's there's truth in that yeah I think so <laughs> but uh, but on the other hand there's also just kind of a job training truth right so if you have been in Congress for a long time what are you really good at well that that's clearly an indication that you're really good at negotiating with members of Congress so I mean I think there's a little bit both of the there's a little bit of A and there's a little bit of B. So you're right. This is an area where there is agreement across the aisle. But I don't think that Congress is going to suddenly put in uh, five-year bans. No. The, two, the, the, the increase from one to two years on uh, uh, um, cabinet – Executive branch. I think that's really yeah. Too short. yeah, executive branch. I think it really needs to be a whole presidential administration. It should be four. I'm not I – mean, 
two just seems like a token. Like who? I don't know. Yeah. No. I'm, four, I'm, would, yeah. four would make more sense because then you're in a new administration, at least you know, yeah. a new era. Um, so with you, you were talking about like a five. I think in some ways, if you wanted, if you really wanted to be honest, you could do something like two for House members, six for senators, four for executive branch. And I think that would make some more logical sense. I like it. I, I'd vote for that. You know, one other thing, and this is on my wish list, never happened, Trey, but uh, I would love to see restrictions on leadership packs. Uh, you, you couldn't ban them really? outright because of First Amendment issues and so forth. But you certainly I could I could see ways that you could structure legislation that would limit the percentage of leadership pack funds that could be spent on what are called fundraising activities. A lot of people don't know about this, but this is the greatest congressional slush fund that you would ever see. And what I mean by that, and again, no, this is no news to you, Trey, is that members can set up these leadership packs and they don't have to be for leaders. They're for anyone, basically. And ostensibly, it's to raise money to give to other campaigns, you know, for your party. It's how you move up in the ranks, but also it allows you to spend a ton of money on a ton of money on nice little things that are sort of in the process of raising money. You need to, you know, raise money by having events at nice places or or things like, for instance, Rand Paul, who you know is supposed to be this libertarian kind of. You, you could see him maybe not. Being, I used to think that. Yeah. Well, yeah. Rand Paul. That's a whole other episode. It's gone off the rails. Yeah, it is. But Rand Paul spent. Uh, forty four hundred dollars on limousine service in Rome from his from his leadership pack. Uh, I don't know what that was for. Uh, Devin Nunes spent fifteen thousand dollars on Celtics tickets in twenty seventeen. Uh, Representative Meek spent more than nine thousand dollars at a Las Vegas resort. Uh, Ben Nelson loves Disney World. He spent over $40,000 from his leadership pack on fundraising events there. I mean, it's, Wait, now in his defense, it's like $20,000 to go. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. But it, it's just a ridiculous slush fund. And again, Congress is, is a lot more interested in regulating everyone but Congress. And so I really well, can, and I will say about those specifically, you, you know, you mentioned them as being uh, slush funds. The way they're probably even a little bit more politically questionable is is it gives members who don't need to raise money for themselves because they are now safe the ability to have a lot of control yep. over their other members because they control the purse strings so by kind of sucking up those money those monies into their uh, packs, even though they're in safe districts, it allows them to dole it out the way that they want to. So while, you know, going to Disney World and being a, and, and, and the limousine in Rome, I mean, it, it ma makes us all collectively raise our eyebrows. The, pr the more immediately uh, political question problem is, is then this makes some members beholden to safe seat members. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, there, there are reasons, for instance, why Nancy Pelosi is, you know, Speaker of the House and it, it doesn't necessarily exactly have to deal with her, you know, sterling record in, in matters of policy. She uh, It has to do with how she raises there she, you and go. she's in a safe location. There you uh, go. Absolutely. And, and again, I mean, we're bashing on Pelosi. It, it's not just Democrats. Nope. This is any long term member of Congress. This is totally bipartisan. Yeah. In a safe seat. Now, there are some long term members of Congress who need the money. In other words, they're raising it. But in general, once you get into that kind of safe position. Yep. yep. It's it's really hard. I think you'll agree, Trey, to, to really delve into the campaign finance system that we have, whether you're a, a Democrat or a Republican, and not come away just feeling like it's just this god-awful mess and feel embarrassed and, and kind of sickened in a lot of ways. Well, I, I think in large part that's due to the fact that this was not an area, that was not something that 
early Congress's uh, constitutional framers had in mind because it wasn't it wasn't a big deal. The amount of, I mean, because you couldn't there was only so much media you could buy once upon a time. Uh, and, and as that has changed, and I think this is particularly hard because it's so tied to the ever evolving political communication environment in which we find ourselves and media changes so rapidly. I'm, I'm, as a matter of fact, I don't want to spend too much time here, but I, I'm teaching a media politics class right now. And it's sometimes hard for students to wrap their head around how rapidly, even just in my short lifetime, uh, political communication has changed because of just the changing structure of media technology. Yeah, abs- absolutely. Definitely. And, you know, I think if we kind of pull back, I'm fairly confident that this will not pass the Senate, at least not in its current version. But here's what no. I think will happen. What I think will happen is there, again, there will be some modification to the filibuster. I think it's going to happen either this year or very early next year, but I think it's going to happen later later on this year. And I believe that once the, that the Democrats in the Senate will modify the filibuster and then they will have to pass some key elements of this for the people act because if they don't just from a strategic standpoint what that what this will mean if they don't do this is that number one it will basically doom joe biden's legislative agenda it will doom the democratic the progressive agenda and also it will almost ensure given what republicans on the state level are doing that democrats will put themselves in a horrific position in 2022 and this is especially important now especially with the gerrymandering stuff with redistricting coming up so this i think is increasingly going to be a key focus of democrats and there will be i believe that there will be some action on this because democrats are going to start looking at this as simply a matter of party survival, just like Republicans are are doing. The only difference is that Democrats see the advantage to themselves in expanding the electorate. Republicans see the advantage in going the other way, certainly. And if we go back to the, say, 1950s or early 1960s, that was kind of reversed, right, in, in certain aspects. So that's what I expect to happen. And of course, a lot is going to revolve around Joe Manchin. And, and, I kind of wanted to talk a little bit about Joe Manchin before we move on to our final story, if that's okay, because he's so important, right? Joe Manchin is 73 years old. Uh, He's up for re-election in 2024, and, and I'm guessing he expects to have at least one more full term. It doesn't seem unreasonable. But, you know, you got to ask yourself, does Joe Manchin want his remaining time to be in the minority? And I'm betting no, he doesn't actually. But then again, there's also also the possibility that Manchin does a reverse Jim Jeffords. And for those of you who are a little older and know some <laughs> political history, Jeffords was a was a uh, was was a Democrat who I'm sorry was a was a Republican. Republican. No, he was a Democrat who became a Republican. No, other way around. Was other a way Republican around. He was, a, he was a Republican a Democrat. who became yeah. a Democrat. Beca- yeah. And so you can see potentially uh, Joe Manchin saying, "Well, you know what? Uh, maybe." I can say that the Democratic Party has moved too far left. I'm tired of being pushed. And like most West Virginians, goes over to the Republican Party. This wouldn't be a weird thing. In 2017, West Virginia's current governor, Jim Justice, switched his party affiliation from Democratic to Republican. Um, You know, and we've seen this huge shift in West Virginia, right? As recently as 2014, it was completely controlled by Democrats, but now it's just totally swamped 
Republican control, like a two to one advantage in the state Senate, a three to one advantage in the state House. It does not take a lot to see Joe Manchin just saying, you know what? Life would be a lot easier for me if I just became a Republican. Now, now, Jim Justice, the governor, says uh, it's frivolous to talk about Joe Manchin doing that. But I don't think it's frivolous at all. And he didn't say it's impossible or unlikely. I mean, he did the same thing. And you could certainly see that happening, I think. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that I think is hard when you're first trying to analyze these seats is you might say, well, man, Manchin, he sucks. But really what you're talking about is Manchin is who he is because of where he comes from. Yeah. And I, I think when you look at these members of Congress and where they are in the spectrum, it's really easy from your ideological side. I don't mean you personally, but our ideological sideline to say, well, why doesn't Republican A or Democrat B, you know, why aren't they more in line with the rest of the party? And the answer is, is because they aren't responsible to the party in our system. They're responsible to their constituency. And because they're responsible to their constituency, those individuals who fall in that mind, it's because that's what's going to get them elect, reelected, right? Because again, we, we mentioned it earlier in the show, that that's the primary deal. So, you know, you were mentioning uh, kind of your prediction for the, uh, for the, the filibuster to change. But do you think that's likely if you simultaneously think it's likely that Manchin would switch well, flip parties? Yeah, it's a great question. And, and I think it's more likely that Manchin will agree to, like I said, a limited change to the filibuster, like where it will still allow him to keep his word on that. But again, I think that we have to consider the possibility that it just makes more sense for him politically especially if he wants one more term, which which everything I've heard suggested he wants at least one more term to say, you know what, even if I modified it, I would take too much flack and maybe it's just going to be easier for me to become a Republican. And again, for a lot of people, that seems like, oh, that would doom you. But the fact that the governor of West Virginia just did that a few years ago, and there's a there's a long history of that. We saw a number of actual of uh, congressional Democrats do that in the early 90s as the party changed from the solid Democratic South to the solid Republican South. So there's plenty of precedent for that. Joe Manchin's a popular person in the state. He could totally get away with that. And and that's why I think so much revolves around particularly him because he's in sort of a unique position being a Democrat from such a strongly Republican state. So that's very different from, you know, cinema in, in Arizona, which is, you know, a toss-up state sort of thing. Manchin really is the linchpin in this. And maybe for me, it's the it's my hope being, uh, you know, kind of outrunning my, my political cynicism. But I'd like to think it's more likely that we'll see these reforms, not, not in part because maybe it's part of it, not because I am a Democratic partisan, I am a big D Democratic partisan, but because I believe that the system should be more small D Democratic and that in the long term, we all benefit if we don't compress, we don't suppress voting, but we make voting as widespread and safe as we can. And it seems to me that for partisan reasons, largely the Democratic Party is moving in that direction. Also, for partisan reasons, the Republican Party is moving in the opposite direction. And it just so happens that I believe in the small D Democratic direction. Yeah, I don't disagree. Um, making it easier for people to be registered is, I think, an, is, is the right thing to do. It's the right thing to do. It's the small D Democrat thing to do. Um, 
And I think that Republicans can think about it in a more positive way if it forces us to get out of the narrow minded uh, Trump casting that has, has occurred for the past four plus years now uh, and thinking about how we message in a broader and better way. Now, I still think it's interesting that, you know, you bring up the mansion and, and the jump because, you know, it, I, I, you're not going to see both of those happen. You're not going to have both the uh, the uh, the even a limited filibuster right. change. Yeah. If so, you know, the signal, I mean, I guess if, you know, if your prediction holds true, that means then that there's no way Manchin is going to flip parties because like that would that right. would be he, he, the worst of both worlds. Right. No, no, that wouldn't happen. No, no. So, right. I mean, that could be the uh, that could be the tell. So maybe as we get deeper into the year, if we notice that's not on the docket, that could be an indication then maybe, Mike, that, that Manchin is, is considering flipping. And that could be a reason that Dems don't push him on a a. Uh, a change yeah. on the filibuster. So I, I will make my, before we move on to our final story, I will make my, my second, I think, bold prediction, I don't know, uh, of this episode is that by the end of this year, there will be a modification uh, of the filibuster. Now you said that, yeah. So, and so you okay. think by the end of the year. I, I'm going to say, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to, yes, I'm going to say by the end of 2021, we will see that. And, and if, if that does in fact happen, I will crow about that probably, uh, you know, for, the, for, the, <laughs> for many years. And if it doesn't happen, I will just kind of hope that no one remembers that prediction. Listen, That's how you're, you're allowed to crow because as I recall, you had to sing a Trump song. That's right. Uh, oh my God. Years, years ago. ago. I oh. felt bad for you. Yeah. I have to be honest. That oh, was, that was, was one of the few times where I was yeah. listening and I was like, oh, I'm sorry, Mike. Yeah, that was rough. That was rough. But I will. I Yeah, absolutely. Hey, you know, and uh, we need to take just a quick break. But when we come back, we will talk about one more one more story. Actually, we're going to get into something that I promised we would talk about in last week's show with Jay. And that is the conservative political action uh, conference last week in Donald Trump's speech, which happened just after we recorded last week's show. And so I'll be interested in Trey and getting your thoughts about Trump and the future of the Republican Party. And that will be right after we come back from this short break. Okay, Trey. So, as you know, CPAC had its annual meeting last week, and President Trump was the main draw. President Trump and the golden idol of President Trump there that many people <laughs> bowed and scraped and took selfies before. And boy, you had to get a little bad. I had some biblical thoughts about, about that sort of. I had a lot of thoughts. Yeah. We can't have them all on the podcast. There you go. Yeah. But, uh, you know, the president, our former President Trump, spoke on Sunday, February 28th, the final day of the meeting. And in his over 90-minute speech, oh, my God, uh, he, he repeated— Listen, careful, careful. You know, Apparently, yeah. God was out in the hallway. Yeah, that's, uh, that's right. That's right. Um, so uh, the highlights, such as they were, let's see, he repeated his untrue claim that he won the election in 2020— he suggested that he might decide to beat the Democrats a third time in 2024. He gave himself credit for Republican down-ballot successes in 2020, even though he ran behind many down-ballot Republicans, I guess due to election fraud. Uh, he blasted by name a number of Republicans who supported his impeachment. He unloaded on, I love this, the anti-jobs, anti-family, anti-borders, anti-energy, anti-women, and anti-science Biden administration. And he called for the defeat of the For the People Act, which he characterized as a disaster and a monster that must be stopped. And you know, Trey, that there was also this straw poll that was taken at CPAC. And based on that, 
it seems like this is still pretty clearly Donald Trump's party. Uh, 95% of the attendees said that the party should continue to push Trump's issues. 68% said that he should run in 2024. Uh, Trump was also the clear 2024 preference, number one preference for CPAC attendees. He got 55% support. Ron DeSantis was a distant second at 21%, and no other Republican pulled in double digits. And I had to imagine that that was just a crushing blow to uh, Ted Cruz there. Uh, what, what did you think just in general of CPAC and Trump's speech in particular, maybe even that, you know, golden Trump image that apparently was made in Mexico. Um, I guess it got through because there wasn't a wall. I, anyway, um, go ahead, Trey. <laughs> <laughs> you can't make me laugh like that. And then like, you want me to do something serious. No, I will say on a serious, but also funny note, I think, you know, the reason Cruz didn't poll and Hey, by the way, if any of Cruz's people are listening, you know, maybe hire me and I'll fix things for him. But, uh, here's the problem. Being mini-me to the guy who's still around just makes you mini-you, and nobody cares about you now because you're nobody. So like, how he thought he was going to pull well being Donald Trump when there was still Donald Trump. <laughs> I mean, forget the, you know, forget the issues, forget anything else. I mean, that's just the dumbest thing. And he need, like everybody who thought that was going to work, Cruz, fire them. I will work for pennies on the dollar, and I'll turn you into a, a, maybe a nice human being. Um, wow. Okay, but, Trey, <laughs> you were cut out for you, man. <laughs> oh, geez. So here, you know, I, I was disappointed with CPAC. I was deeply, deeply disappointed with CPAC. Now, I will say there are some, there are a few highlights. One is, you know, you talked about the 68% of the crowd wanted to run in 2024. However, in the same straw poll, only 55% of them said that they would support his nomination. Right. So that means they want him to be in it for some kind of reason, but they don't want him to win it. They don't want to even want to vote. So clearly there's a little something going on there. So I have a little bit of solace in the fact that we're looking at more like a coin toss when it comes to CPAC. I, I wish it was lower. Um, and we should say that CPAC has a really bad record of picking the uh, uh, Republican nominee for the next election. Uh, they tend to pick somebody who is, you know, endeared to the conservative base. And, and recall, everyone should recall that uh, that wasn't Donald Trump. Donald Trump was was looked at mm -hmm. kind of askance by conservatives uh, before 2016, thinking that, well, he's not necessarily a real conservative. That turned out to be true. But that I guess this is the larger point I was wondering about, Trey, is, is the Republican Party even a conservative party anymore? Uh, it seems to me more like a populist party because the sort of people who CPAC in the past has supported have been people who were considered real conservatives like or or even libertarians uh, to a certain extent like your Rand Pauls and mm -hmm. and, and folks like that and Donald Trump is not that and yet he seems to have completely captured the Republican party and I know that concerns you I think we're you know I, we've mentioned this before we are in the midst of there's a civil war in, in in the Republican party and we don't want to talk about it because that kind of terminology uh, sounds bad. It's it's bad for elections. <clears throat> but you, you, the the crux of the matter is is that in our big tent for a long time, there have been the classical conservatives, the libertarians like myself, who had enough close relationships either because of religiosity, right? Again, me, uh, 
or for other kinds of social reasons with your more traditional uh, conservatives and your social conservatives. And that was the Republican coalition. Now, I think what happened is slowly but surely we just didn't recognize it. And I'll, I'll I, I will be as honest as the next person to say I did not see this, although in retrospect, I think it, it, it's easier to kind of uh, uh, to do an autopsy on. But you're right. We have seen populism come in, I think, especially kind of a white nationalist populism. Uh, I'm just going to be blunt. Uh, or, or at least even if it's not overtly in that uh, vein, it is in a um, kind of a dog whistle way of a, a, of a, pop, uh, of a populist, which is a, a, a combination that I think is unique. And I think that's something if, if Trump is going to be go down in history as having any kind of insight, I think it was recognizing that that was a, a big beat piece of the Republican Party in a way that many of us had not recognized. And so here we see this, these polls coming out here at CPAC, and I think this kind of coin toss position between the Trump, which is this populist view, I think, in a positive way versus myself and others. And, and this is the turning point. And I think the question is going to be over the next few years, as we determine who that next candidate is, this is going to be the Republican Party um, of the future. Now, you know, uh, I think it's telling that Trump came to CPAC, and I think it's also telling that he came out and uh, argued that, hey, you know, that everything was just fake news about me starting my own party. Uh, and I don't think that was all fake news. I think that was Donald Trump trying to decide where he had the best chance. And I think the fact that he shows up at CPAC is an indication that he still has hope or he views himself as having still hope yeah. in the Republican yeah. Party. Because if we know anything, Trump does not care about blowing things up. So if he thought that starting a party would be the best path forward, he would have started a party. Yeah. So he comes to CPAC because either based on his gut or some kind of data that we don't have access to, he thinks this is the way forward. Yeah. Uh, from my point of view, I think that this is the chance for the Romneys and myself to be able to say no. Right. And I think this is our last. I, so he, here's my kind of, you know, sometimes I think I'm the optimist between the two of us. My, I think here's an example of where maybe I'm going to be the pessimist between the two of us. And that is, is that if we as Republicans cannot purge Trump from the party, if he polls high, if he comes in and if heaven forbid, he becomes the nominee <clears throat> to run is for what he calls erroneously, you know, a, a third win then the Republican Party is no longer a conservative party and, and, and my team lost. Um, and, and I'll be willing to admit that, uh, that, that we lost. But it, that's going to be the point for me, uh, and I think for others like me, where we're going we're gonna to have to make a final exit decision. Um, and, and I think that, um, you know, we, we've, we gritted and, and dealt and fought with Trump for a while. But at some point you have to say, well, this just isn't what I can support anymore. Yeah. And so I think what I saw at CPAC, you know, like his comments, you know, actually, they just lost the White House. But who knows? Who knows? You know, and yeah, yeah. Or like his, his calling Biden's classroom. I mean, we can disagree about. You know, just like we have sometimes about COVID, but to call Biden anti-science because he's following CDC guidelines or to ridicule uh, 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 the CDC because they had revised recommendations again 
is just ridiculousness. That, that, that in and of itself is anti-science. And so, I mean, I, I, I'll, I'll let you talk for a minute. Yeah, no, no, <laughs> I, I, I agree, certainly. Effectively is just that I think that if, 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 the, if Trump has movement, those of us who are anti-Trump, we have to leave. That, I mean, it, it's our time. We, we don't belong anymore in the Republican Party, if that's the case. Um, and I'll, I'll, be, I'll be honest, you know, this is something that I have thought long and hard about. If, if Trump comes around, if he's the nominee, I'm out. I'm, you know, I will still be the, the conservative libertarian voice that I am, but I won't have a home in the Republican Party. And I certainly will not keep my registration as a Republican. Yeah. Well, you know, I I pulled back because I I know that CPAC is not a great indicator of who may be the next president, almost a, a reverse indicator. But I looked at the, the one of the odd sites in the 2024 presidential odds, mm-hmm. and I'll put a link to it in the show notes. But it's interesting to me how Donald Trump is still, from Republicans, the clear odds-on favorite, and how also how you know there was a blip certainly after. January 6th, between January 6th and the impeachment, but then he kind of went back to the same sort of trajectory. And it made me think, you know, I can certainly envision this is maybe a nightmare scenario in which the primary process being what it is and how extremists tend to run the primaries on both sides, that Donald Trump, you and I, I'm sure, can both envision a scenario in which Donald Trump actually becomes the nominee in 2024. And given if if Republicans are successful in many of these states in kind of limiting voting and also if, you know, there's no contravening changes at the federal level because Democrats, you know, don't don't pass any legislation. There's no change in the filibuster. You can easily see a situation where it's January of, of 2025 and Donald Trump is president with uh, healthy majorities in both the House and the Senate of a Trumpist party. Yeah, I mean, that's not (laughs) that's not inconceivable. Right. And I mean, I I, but then again, I also can see a situation just as likely where Trump is the nominee and there actually have been some reforms uh, of 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 voting rights in, in a positive direction. And the Republican Party just simply gets completely wiped out. And then all of a sudden, Republicans finally say, my God. We can't do this anymore. We need to kind of reboot our party in a way that's going to actually appeal to voters. And that, I think, would, would you know, potentially be a healthy thing because I want a healthy two-party democracy, but we don't, we don't have it now. And maybe it takes just a crushing blow, a crushing defeat by Trump for Trumpist ideology to kind of move the Republican Party forward into, I think, a healthier way. Well, two things to, to, to kind of add to your analysis and, and maybe critique a little bit. One of those, Mike, is, is you mentioned there the idea of the the two equally plausible scenarios. I think there's a third. Okay. And I think it's I think it's the healthier one. And I think that's the one where in the nomination process, we weed out Trump and he goes down in defeat. And here's why I say that, because if if Trump wins the nomination, we know already know how individuals vote and that means that party affiliation will continue to be a big predictor and and what that means is, is you're not you you don't see major thumpings like that in contemporary politics right. i think in large part because of the way people vote 
So my concern about your scenario too is, is I don't, I don't think if you, if, if the Republican party has hope, if the Republican party has hope of, of ending this Trumpism, it's going to have to be the, the defeat in the nomination process. If Trump went, you know, if Trump wins that nomination process, then I, I don't see the, the, the course of action changing. The other minor critique that I'd have there, and, and I hear this from a lot of, uh, of, of Democrats and progressives is effectively, you know, that there's, you know, that the Republicans need to move towards the voters. Uh, and, you know, that's what Trump's holding them back. Well, of course, I think one of the problems with Trump is, is there is a large voting block of individuals yeah. for that kind of, 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 of populist nationalist view. And that's not my vision of the future. That's not your vision of the future. And I think it's easy, I think especially for lower D Democrats, um, to think that at base, you know, working class guys, working class gals are going to be in that kind of progressive vein. Trump has demonstrated otherwise. And, and so when you say, hey, it's not electorally viable, I don't know if that's true. That's one of the things that bothers me, right? Uh, and, and so I, I think Democrats really have to, they're going to have to open their eyes a little bit to the fact that the reason Trump was successful was there is a voter constituency for that. Um, sure, yeah. And, and, and so, you know... So again, I think there's kind of this hope that deep down the people will fix it. But I guess what my pushback a little bit there is to say the, there wouldn't need to be a fix if the general constituency had already rejected it. Well, and I think, you know, clearly the general constituency rejected it in the 2020 presidential election where Joe Biden. Which is positive. Yeah, yes, exactly. Yes. And so I, I expect that my hopeful view of things is that that would be the case in 2024 as well. But I, I'm going to I'm going to make sure at least we close at least on a partly optimistic note where I believe that Donald Trump will not be the 2024 nominee. I think that just after after January 6th, I, I just think it's not very likely. I'm going to say there's like a 70% chance he's not the nominee. Anything could happen. Certainly, I was I was saying the same thing in 2016, but I, I really do not think he's going to end up being the nominee, that the Republican Party will slowly but surely right the ship and we're not going to be, we're not going to have some horrible crisis. That's That's my hope, certainly. I, I, I'm not willing to put a percentage on it yet, yeah. Mike. I think we're just too early. Yeah, I think we so, need. I think yeah. we need another about nine months. Yeah, I, I know. I think I, that's that's fair. I think we're going to learn a lot from the midterm election, certainly. But uh, one final thing I should mention is definitely check out those presidential odds, especially the the full list, because I mm -hmm. love the fact that Ted Cruz is actually running behind Dwayne Johnson. Uh, and I think that's really great. <laughs> and he's like a number like 13th place or something like that. Ivanka Trump's doing better than he is. Even Michael Flynn is running ahead of Ted Cruz right now. And that just that just makes me smile and just kind of just that's going to make my day really. So again, I'll, I'll include that in the show notes, but yeah. Oh, you, Ted Cruz. Are you going to include the website or are you going to include your pleasure in the oh, show? Oh, both that's actually <laughs> both. Uh, but, but anyway, well, there were a number of things we didn't get to, but we will get to them in the bonus show. Like for instance, 
everything that's going on with uh, Governor Andrew Cuomo, which got a lot of stuff there. Uh, Texas and Mississippi lifting their mask requirements, pretty controversial there. And also some very encouraging signs if you are a union person. Uh, Joe Biden's come out uh, not exactly in favor of unions. Well, we'll talk about that uh, on the bonus show, maybe even a little bit more. And if you are a supporter, that will be in your feed on Wednesday. And if you're not a supporter, just go to patreon.com slash guys and sign up. And of course, as always, if you can't afford to become a supporter, but you want to get access to that, send me an email, mike at politicsguys.com, and I will make that happen. And something that doesn't cost anything that we really would appreciate, if you could subscribe to the show, leave ratings and reviews, and especially sharing episodes through social media, email, what have you, really simple to do that little, if you've never done it before, it's that little triangular share thing in your app, just that's really helpful, only takes a couple seconds, and that's the best advertising, that word of mouth sort of thing. And if you want to reach us for any reason, we're at mailapoliticsguys.com. We're also on Facebook and Twitter, and you will find those links in our show notes. The executive producers of Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andre Masker, Daniel Toe, Chris Wilkerson, and Nathan Sosnowski. We'll be back with a new show next week. We hope you'll join us.